0: Hello, gentle listeners. I am Bob Bowden with Choice Media, an on, uh, online education news site and smartphone app, and we appreciate you tuning in. Kara Kandel is holding court this week at the Foundation for Excellence in Education Conference, a.k.a. ExcelinEd.org Conference, a.k.a. EIE19 Conference, going on in San Diego. A city whose weather I'm very tired of hearing about. Hearing praise about San Diego's weather is like hearing about every award won by some prodigious, snotty kid as related by his or her humble, brag-loving parent. You get a little sick of the whole isn't San Diego awesome routine. But that's just me. Uh, I will be holding court here for episode 12 of The Learning Curve, so thank you for tuning in. The biggest story of the week might have been the massive report co-reported by ProPublica Illinois and the Chicago Tribune. And boy, it was a whopper of a story titled The Quiet Rooms. And this story is about children being locked away, often alone and terrified in schools across Illinois. It happens in other states, too. But the focus of this story was Illinois. And the piece says that that many schools are doing this against the law, locking kids in isolation rooms. Now, Now let's read the spaces. It says in the story here, I'm going to read a bit. It says the spaces have gentle names, the reflection room, the cool down room, the calming room, the quiet room, but shut inside them in public schools across the state, children as young as five wail for their parents, scream in anger and beg to be let out. The students, most of them with disabilities, scratch the windows or tear at the padded walls, they throw their bodies against locked doors. They wet their pants. Some children spend hours inside these rooms, missing class time. Through it all, adults stay outside the door, writing down what happens. And, wow, it's, so again, more than 100 schools. Interesting, not Chicago. Chicago uh, does not use these isolation rooms. But in a bunch of other districts in Illinois, uh, over 100 districts, it does happen. Now, they also say in the story... That it is legal for school employees to seclude students in separate spaces, put them in these isolated timeouts, if the students post a safety threat to themselves or others. Yet every school day workers isolate children for reasons that violate that law, according to this investigation by the Tribune and ProPublica, Illinois. They say children were sent to isolation rooms after refusing to do classwork or for swearing or for spilling milk. Or for throwing Legos, ProPublica Illinois and the Tribune obtained and analyzed 20,000 incidents from the, I guess, just a, about a year and a half of school year, 2017 to 18 school year. And then through early December 2018, they say uh, of the 20,000 incidents, about 12,000 included enough detail to determine what prompted the incident or the timeout. And in more than a third of those where they could actually tell what was going on, school workers documented no safety reasons for the seclusion. So, so at least I guess they're saying in a third, in a third, it was even though the law says it's only to be used for violent situations, that a, at least a third of the time there was no violence cited. Now I've had uh, you know colleagues and friends all over the the school reform, ed, education reform, school choice a world. Uh, You know, tweeting about this uh, and decrying what seems like prison sentences and uh, torturous conditions, I guess, on the part of, uh, uh, well, for some of these kids. I should also say, before we go too far, there was an there was an update to the story. The original story came out Tuesday about these isolation rooms across Illinois. And the very next day, on Wednesday of this week, the Illinois School Board of Education announced it will take emergency action to end the seclusion of children, saying the practice has been misused and overused to a shocking extent. And so the news story quotes one professor, Scott Danforth, of Chapman University in California, who studies the education of children with disabilities, uh... He offered interesting analysis, this Professor Scott Danforth, on the use of isolation rooms, so I decided to call him up, and Professor Danforth told me this.
1: These, these practices are used for noncompliance. They're used for people who don't follow the rules and who are disruptive um, in much, much lesser ways, or... If it does escalate to the point where the student is violent, um, typically the violence is more on property, throwing desks over or flipping a chair or something, the the, the teachers are part of the escalation. The teachers are part of it. Um, I used to have a professor when I was a student many years ago that said that students don't escalate themselves. Um, a child sitting by himself doesn't get angrier and angrier and start throwing things, it actually takes interactions with others. To carve out a space and say that sometimes this is okay, the problem with that is immediately that okay space becomes larger and larger and larger and before you know it, people in schools all around the country are grabbing kids and putting them in rooms and they can't even explain why.
0: No one doubts my, uh, you know, willingness to criticize school districts. Uh, some might even call that my brand, Scott. I have, I'm absolutely <laughs> zero hesitation if I feel criticism is deserved. I am, I'm the, I'm the guy ready, ready to do that. But I also, as to which you alluded earlier, I do have some feelings of sympathy for situations where, you know, a kid may suddenly, without warning, become. Maybe not directly violent by hitting, but let's say pretending like he's going to hit somebody or pretending like he's going to throw something or he picks up the desk as if he's about to throw the desk at the teacher, but doesn't quite throw it at the teacher or all kinds of scenarios that it's easy for me to sit in my nice office and say, oh, this is horrible that this, uh, you know, kid has been put in a room. And so I guess I have some sympathy for a situation where you don't know what the kid's going to do next. They could be kind of uncontrollable and, and uh, you know, mentally unstable. And, and I, so I just wanted to kind of ask you about that. Like how, how strident should we be in calling out teachers for not following rules exactly if uh, there is some dynamic and dangerous feeling scenario?
1: I think that your your, your sympathy is accurate. Um, that there are teachers that are teaching students who have, you know, a, a history of engaging in, in violent, and disruptive behavior, and, and, and it, it may happen again. And those teachers have very very difficult jobs. The the larger question though isn't just that one moment and what should the teacher do. It's how do you run a school? How do you run a school so that this kind of student disruptive behavior and violence is far less likely
0: all right we're back now uh this is just bob the the phone chat is finished but but what do i say about this i mean i say again this is one where um there can be different perspectives on school discipline and i like the idea of respecting different opinions in other words Another person's opinion can be right for that other family, while my different opinion can also be right for my family. That's, of course, heresy to the majority of education. I guess I mean not all but the majority of education policy researchers who have often career goals to find the one single best compromise policy for all students in all schools. Let's do discipline this one way, every way, everywhere. And that is the you know, that's an optimization problem they is, is their approach of how to handle school discipline. Let's find the one best policy. Of course, I'm, I'm a pluralist, and I'm against that. A good analogy would be the FDA. Think of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and you probably know how drugs have been tested for decades. Double-blind studies, you know, you'll give the drugs to the new drug. It gets invented. You give the new drug to half of the people in the study, give placebos to the other half of the people, and then you compare the patient response to the drug. But here's the thing. See, some new kinds of drugs work better on patients with certain DNA markers. But they don't work or they even cause harm to people with other DNA markers. And so, you know, you can think of this, right? Imagine a drug that cures cancer in a population with one kind of DNA, but then everyone else kills them, you know? The uh, typical old-fashioned established FDA drug testing paradigm says, give the same drug to everybody at random, and what, what would happen? Well, it would kill a whole bunch of the people in the people getting the drug group. And so they'd say, oh, this drug is useless. Well, it's actually not useless if you give it to the people with the certain DNA. So we need a better way to test drugs that account for differences in patients. So, too, we need different school discipline paradigms, in my opinion, that would account for differences in students. And it happens a little bit now in terms of special alternative schools for students who are sufficiently emotionally disturbed so as to be assigned to uh, special, uh, uh, you know, these kinds of alternative schools. But I expect that trend to broaden, in other words. And so to me, to accept a value or a place for curricular differentiation without accepting a similar value in school culture differentiation or discipline differentiation is to me evidence of visionlessness of how the future could be which I could also call blindness I guess but visionlessness I like better it seems to imply the future if I talk about that all right so that's that is the story and and we will be I'm sure visiting this this general issue of basically what to do when kids get violent to me is very complicated and as i expressed to professor danforth i am sympathetic to uh, to how to deal with those situations they would i think be fraught with all kinds of potential you know st- the, the stress of the teacher, the stress of the kids, the potential lawsuits involved. The you know, do you touch the kid? How what ki- what kind of way are you allowed to touch the kid? Is it? It's almost like you, you need to be trained in, in an immense to an immense degree of you know different DEFCON levels of of stimulus and response to 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 know how to handle what could be a spontaneous dangerous scenario. That's to me you know, pretty complicated. So I, I, I'll i leave it at that. Let's move on. Next story, survey. Generation Z divided over First Amendment. Oh my goodness. Generation Generation Z. So what is this? <laughs> this is a group called the Knight Foundation. They did this survey, all right? You guys ready? High school age girls and people of color who face more online bullying are more likely to say the First Amendment goes too far in protecting Free speech, okay, compared to boys and white students. This is one of the main takeaways from the latest Future of the First Amendment Knight Foundation report, analyzing the result of seven surveys of high school kids between 2004 up through last year, 2018. It says white students' support for the First Amendment has been relatively stable, while students of color increasingly say the First Amendment goes too far. All right. So I looked at this and, uh, you know, first of all, I, I have to say my, my my humble recommendation to the Knight Foundation is they may want to ask their questions a little bit. They kind of lead the witnesses. It's, I like to read the survey questions. I suggest this when everyone sees these kinds of cultural polls or cultural surveys actually think about, care about, see if you can actually dive deep enough to read the actual question presented to people, because oftentimes it does lead it leads the it leads the way like the way this question was phrased is things like, does the First Amendment go too far? Oh, well, well, no, I think the right way to pose that would be saying, does the First Amendment uh, correctly protect freedom of expression or does it go too far? Like at least give some sort of framing of both points of view and then allow the person to pick. Anyway, want to know how to make someone support the First Amendment? I say censor them. That's how you do it. And what happens? They say to themselves, oh, wait a minute. You mean I can't express myself? Wait, hold on a second. When I said the First Amendment goes too far, I was defining hate speech as other people's opinions. Oh, my goodness. Now, once my opinions get called hate speech, now, that's, now I'm suddenly a supporter of the First Amendment. But I would also say, really, so why do these kids, uh, To just to, be, to drill a little deeper, uh, why would the kids be saying there is too much free speech? And it does it does suggest this idea of cyber bullying. And it's, it's something that happens, of course, in the school's the way that was not going on when I was a kid. I, I know I'm dating myself. I suspect many listeners to the learning curve podcast may not have had a lot of cyber bullying incidents when they were kids either. And, uh, you know, so I didn't think of when I thought of bullying back in my day, I didn't think of it having anything to do with free speech. It was more of a like punching in the face kind of question. It wasn't really a free speech question, um, and so, and so with no teacher or parent there, policing online shaming tactics, you have, I think, resulting increases in everything from student stress levels to suicides. It's a vexing question, and you know we've we've. I don't know what to say about this, folks. Maybe you guys can text or whatever, tweet about it, or let me know. One of my Choice Media colleagues, we were talking about this in the office, said that another factor in this whole free speech opposition concept is modern coddled kids who were not taught how to handle anything, like maybe their emotions, for example. She cited an uh, example, in fact, she sent me a Twitter video of a college student who had some kind of sign, and then another student shows up with an opposing sign, and this College student, she freaks out and rips his sign and then hits him. And she screams that he sacrificed her safety because he had a sign with an opposing view. And I think, you know, we can imagine this. I'm just going to go on a limb here and say this is a child for whom every scraped knee could have been treated as some kind of medical emergency. And so I guess there's that thing, right? There's that coddling thing. And maybe that's part of what's going on. But back to the cyberbullying for a second. You know, when it's a Saturday and there's a kid, you know, at home on a cell phone in a Facebook chat or even just a text group or, a, you know, something on Instagram or, you know, saying some other student is stupid or ugly or should die and they're there on the phone and they're texting it, you know, who exactly is the guard of that? When I was a kid, there was a schoolyard and, yeah, we'd have recess and, yeah, the bullies could maybe go get in a fight with a kid or even just verbally intimidate a kid and the teachers wouldn't see that would happen. But there was always somebody who was at least theoretically the guard of that space was the teacher was at least supposed to be, or even on a school bus, it's part of the school world. And if something bad enough happened, you can imagine a kid going to a teacher administrator, you know, this scenario i'm describing of a saturday afternoon on a cell phone with one kid saying you know talk trash talking the other i don't know who the guard is of that i'm uncomfortable with the the, the school saying we're going to now monitor all this content you know like the gaggle story we did a couple weeks ago because we get or we're we're going to make sure that you guys don't say anything we don't like that's big brotherish right and so, yet, who is? Is it? So you'd say, "Oh, it's the parent. The parent is the guard of the one kid cyberbullying the other on a weekend." In my scenario, and I'm, but what if one parent calls another about Johnny being a bully, and Johnny's parent doesn't call back, or Johnny's parent doesn't care, or Johnny's parent just reflectively defends Johnny, and you know, yeah, that could have happened when we were kids, too, when I was a kid also about something on a Saturday away from the school where, you know, one kid fights another, I guess you could call the parent, the parent wouldn't care. But cyberbullying is different. in the way it can kind of go on 24 seven. And the victim kid can feel like they can never get away, even though, of course, they can turn off their phone and get away. But they may they may not feel that way. Anyway, I've strayed quite a bit from the First Amendment survey. Story number three, Thousands of teachers flood the Indiana State House in a Red for Ed rally, everybody. Nearly half of Indiana public schools were closed on Tuesday as thousands of teachers descended on the state capitol in a Red for Ed protest. Over 100 school districts in the state were closed after a massive amount of teachers took the day off for the rally, according to the Indianapolis Star newspaper. That equates to about 45 percent of the public school students or more than half a million children getting the day off from school. The story says educators and allies participating in the Red for Ed Red for Ed Day Action Day organized by the Indiana State Teachers Association and demanding state lawmakers uh, invest more in education. You know, first of all, this, the whole red for ed thing was when I first started hearing about this a year or two ago, it was the red meant it was in red, meaning Republican controlled states, because the West Virginia state, Uh, teacher strike, I think, was first in the list, and I think followed by Oklahoma, then Arizona. And so then we were talking in the office, like, is the red, is that what the red is? Is the red, or is it just now, like, it means, like, red shirts? Using the, the general theory that all knowledge can be found in Wikipedia... We read this uh, Wikipedia entry said reasons given for the choice of color red range from the fact that many initial strikes were in red Republican states to the idea that public school budgets are in the red. I didn't know that one anyway. So like, uh, you know, was the Chicago teacher strike red for Ed? And we're like, no, no, it's because the red for Ed. Things are more like one day things, except no. But the West Virginia strike wasn't a one day thing. And so. Like, what's which, which teacher actions are read? I don't know. All of them now. Anyway, back to the Indiana story. Indiana legislators made the mistake of reigning in their spending the last few years, by the way. So so this is part of the thing. You know, they have a two billion dollar surplus of the state of Indiana. And so part of what the teachers were asking for is is that money quote lawmakers must demonstrate a commitment to addressing teacher pay by using the state's budget surplus to begin increasing base salaries for teachers, Indiana teacher union leaders wrote in a public note of talking points ahead of the action day. They went on to say, quote, the lack of significant and sustainable improvements in our schools over the past decade has placed Indiana behind neighboring States on funding levels and places us last in the nation in teacher salary growth. They'll stick. They'll measure it by whatever way they get measured lower, right? That'll be the key measure in their in their. This lag other states thing, by the way, for me, it's the most laughable morsel of illogic in the entire discussion of probably all of education. This says, pr- prepare listeners, prepare to turn your brain off, right? You ready? This says no state should be in the bottom half of teacher compensation. That's what this logic says. Every state, the, and then you'll the, people that seem educated will say this on television they'll say it with a straight face they'll say it to newspapers what they say is like we we, we are l- below the national average this this logic says all states should pay teachers above the national average and they act like that's sensible it's the lake woebegone theory of education spending you can imagine them chanting fists held high stern faced bathed in their righteous infallibility and proud certitude. We should all receive above average salaries, chanting in their various hypothetical bullhorns. People print this stuff. They print it like it's not insane. And another thing, wouldn't it be funny for like, uh, you know, one state, imagine one state to say, "Uh, okay, our Red for Ed is going to be on a Saturday because we don't want to hurt kids learning. Well, what happened Well, all the all the rest of the state teachers unions would have to say, oh, crap. Now we're going to have to hold ours on Saturday, too. Then, of course, the turnout is one tenth of once it requires teachers giving up a weekend day to show up to the the red for ed thing. You know, that's probably not going to happen. I would just love one state to say, like, oh, maybe we should do this on the weekend, just not to not to ruin school for the kids. You know, I mean, we do that. We do it on a weekend. It's it's wishful thinking on my part. I know it's delusional. Anyway, okay. Those are the three top stories for the week. I I, I go on and on, don't I? Uh, you can, however, that's just three stories. You can subscribe to the Choice Media weekly email blast to receive our top ten story countdown every Friday around midday. It's a countdown, folks, from ten to nine to eight, building in dramatic anticipation until we hit the very top story of each week. So you can sign up for that. But coming up next in the podcast, my interview with Stephen Wilson, who was recently let go as CEO of Ascend Public Charter Schools. I'm now delighted to welcome to the Learning Curve podcast, Stephen Wilson. He is the founder and former CEO of the Ascend Charter Schools of New York City. Before that, he was senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And for those looking hard enough at Mr. Wilson's LinkedIn resume, he actually once had a role at the Pioneer Institute, with whom Choice Media co-produces this very podcast. So I include that both for full disclosure and because it's cool. (laughs) Stephen, thanks for being my guest. We appreciate it. Bob, I'm delighted to be with you. Great. So I now embark on the longest first question in Learning Curve podcast history, Stephen. Please indulge me with that, but also interrupt me if it. I say yeah. Interrupt me if I say something wrong. For those who don't know, Ascend Learning runs 15 charter schools in New York City. I believe all of which are in the borough of Brooklyn. And despite a Stephen's long career of making a positive difference in the lives of thousands of children. I think it's correct to say he's now become more nationally known through controversy. In short, you, Stephen Wilson, wrote a blog post titled The Promise of Intellectual Joy about the Virtues of a Rich Classically Liberal Education, and you walked readers through historical flare-ups of anti-intellectualism generally, or if not that, uh, sometimes the view that okay, some top sliver of elite college-bound students might well be taught high literature and philosophy, but keep all that egghead stuff away from the common man who ought to just learn a trade. You basically pushed back against anti-intellectualism, and I sort of think it could have been titled, quote, Teach ideas to all kids, not just skills, unquote. That could have been your alternate title for the piece, but that's just me. Halfway then – so here we go. Halfway down page six in this seven-page piece you wrote is where the alleged trouble began, and you wrote that, quote One document widely used in diversity workshops, including the training of all New York City administrators, identifies 13 damaging characteristics of white supremacy culture. One is objectivity, which is manifested as the belief there is such a thing as being objective and requiring people to think in a linear way. And you point out that, quote, anti-intellectualism often takes the position that there are only subjective perspectives. Also, you you write that uh, another so-called damaging characteristic of white supremacy culture, according to this diversity workshop, was that the worship of the written word, whereby those with strong documentation and writing skills are more highly valued. And you wrote, but how tragic it would be if any child was taught that a reverence for the written word was a white characteristic. Well, you would think by the reaction that you got that somehow you were like praising the Klan or something in this piece where all you were doing was defending the written word and defending intellectualism. Someone created a petition on the change.org website opposed to your blog post. And I read now one sentence from the change, this change.org petition critical of you. Quote, the underlying message here is that a liberal education is whiteness, comma, whiteness is therefore intellectual, comma, and any challenge to a liberal education is a challenge to whiteness, comma. So any challenge to whiteness is anti-intellectual, unquote. And. Between you and me, I had to read that about five times, and I'm still not quite sure. But So after supplying (laughs) – I told you this was long. After supplying (laughs) Mr. Wilson with your own underlying message that liberal education is whiteness, which you didn't ever come close to actually writing, the petition then calls for a formal public notice accepting responsibility for the impact of this incident on the Ascend community. That incident, meaning your blog post opposing anti intellectual and they also called for a formal investigation of this incident relative to the conduct of Ascends CEO, Stephen Wilson. Some 529 people then clicked that petition. And some point after that, you were fired by the board of the charter school you founded. And so now to my question, how do you summarize what happened with this blog post you wrote and this crazy reaction?
2: Well, I think it's still very hard, Bob, to to fully understand uh, for me and for a lot of other people. I think that, you know, you summarize it so well. What I was trying to write about, and, and I think I wrote fairly clearly about it, is that this country has a long history of anti-intellectualism. And I think that's unfortunate that there have been many, particularly in the education sector, uh, in K through 12, this is a very pronounced tendency. There's been, and I, as you pointed out, I go through the, the the recent history, recent being the last 100 plus years, of efforts to dumb down the curriculum and to prevent most students from receiving, as you said, uh, a liberal education, an education uh, about ideas, um, and. Uh, and I think that's profoundly unjust and unfair and also counterproductive, because my point is that um, the, the if we really want to put the wind in the sails of students learning, let's ignite their curiosity uh, and their love for for learning and for subject matter. Um, and, uh, and 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 I, I submit that that force has been undertapped. And partly it's because of our attitude about, about academic learning, so you would think, as you're pointing out, this is a fairly innocuous, anodyne uh, statement and and content- contention, but it proved to be anything but. And I think that you hit upon one of the one of the uh, particular places where the blog piece uh, proved to be controversial, at least within uh, particular circles. That's my invocation of this particular document, which, believe it or not, is being very widely used now in trainings of uh, teachers. New York City mandated it to be uh, trained on, as they say, uh, uh, for all teachers in the system. And those characteristics of, of ostensibly of white supremacist culture uh, are pretty alarming declarations. The idea that the written word doesn't belong to all humanity and all humanity isn't as capable of the written word is a terrifying, and I would submit, racist idea. So I did, I did call that out, and that created a lot of controversy.
0: How many students are in Ascend Learning Charter Schools, roughly? There are 5,500
2: students in 15 schools in central Brooklyn. OK, so
0: 5,500 students, if you add the parents to that, we're, you know, all we're talking about. I mean, I'm just in, get going by the numbers. 529 people click this petition. Any, num- any idea of what percentage of those 529 had anything to do with Ascend public charter schools?
2: Well, let's just say this. Um you know, a, a tremendous number of people receive Change.org, which is the petition. It's an outrage factory. Uh, that's, of course, a big problem with discourse in this country
0: right now, right? That's and, what I'm getting uh, at. Like, I'm wondering if, literally anybody at a, sin, oh, you know, yeah. may, well, we, maybe we, none we, of the 529 had anything to do with a cent well, charter school. We schools. we we just don't know.
2: We just right. don't know.
0: And so you um. Of course, they don't mention a couple of other little tiny inconvenient facts. Like you have other blogs on the same AscendLearning.org website, like one titled Our Common Cause, Black Lives Matter and Urban Charters. You have another blog called Building a High School that Bridges Inequality in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Uh, And by saying objectivity exists you're kind of, it's, it's as if you're saying subjectivity doesn't exist and therefore there can't be racism. I, I'm, I'm doing my best. It's no, no, I,
2: I think it's really important that we, um, we, we don't want to fall into the same behavior that we're concerned about. So it's really important to try to be, to think deeply and empathetically about uh, these kinds of reactions. And I think that's, 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 that's largely correct. I mean, look, it's been fashionable in academic circles to insist on on subjectivity and the idea that objectivity is doesn't exist or is certainly elusive. And um, I think it's really important to push back on that and to say that the pursuit of truth is is uh, an essential endeavor. I think also what what's happening here is that there is a tremendous premium on what I would call for the lack of better term. And I'm, I'm looking for one on on the part of the intersectional left towards the primacy of 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 storytelling and one's own story. And while um, i I can understand the impulse, I think that for us to be able to work in common cause, um, we have to uh, we have to challenge ourselves to arrive at shared understandings, uh, to 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 look for objective realities, or we can't possibly, Um, have the framework for having any kind of real discussion at all. So I don't like the idea of imposing on students the idea that that all understanding is subjective. That seems to be a very defeatist and dangerous idea.
0: Yeah. It basically equates everyone to like a ranting crazy person on the sidewalk who says, you know, he's about to be picked up by the mothership to go to planet Vulcan. And like, well, it's all subjective. He's, his point of view is as valid as anyone's. Like, nah, that's nah, really not, you know, but. Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, it says that everything is opinion. Um, yeah. And and that's just that's simply not the case. And by the way, this has 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 weird implications. Another th- another area where this. Um, is affecting school reform, Bob, which you've probably done a show on, is the politicization and particularly the racialization of the curriculum. Uh, I don't know if you've been reading about the the proposals in Seattle uh, to reform the math curriculum with the Absolutely. idea that math is itself an oppressive tool. I mean, this is madness. Is. Um, science and math is an inheritance and an asset owned in equal measure by every human being. And one of the great accomplishments of humankind is to build mathematical and scientific understanding in collaboration across nations, across races, um, all over the world. It's, It's a supreme achievement that scientific discovery functions that way. To, yeah. So, to send the message that a discipline like math is intrinsically racist or oppressive is to me absolutely horrifying.
0: It, it, it's as if this would be, this was some sort of yeah. conservative joke site wrote this about liberal orthodoxy saying, oh, you got what you guys really are saying is math is racist. And the, and they would be like, that's ridiculous. We're not saying that. that no, actually, that kind of it's like,
2: yeah, I got to say, it seems on like that, the onion. On or it seems like one, Babylon he, B. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you there, Bob, because I think that you know we always want to be wary of vulgarizing and, and mocking um, a legitimate other viewpoint. But if you do look at that one page framework, it's hard to interpret it any other way. Yeah. Uh, things like um, we're going to study uh Power in the math class. How power is distributed in the math classroom. This is madness. Yeah. Let's talk about the beauty and elegance of math, and let's make that available. Let's make that that skill, that power, and that beauty available to everyone in that classroom.
0: And so, let me just ask you generally about cancel culture. I know this is an education podcast, but if we can just kind of go cultural a little bit, you know, there, certainly there were there were two. You know, there's nothing new about. You know, exile. The Roman Empire did it. You know, uh, in the 19th century, Napoleon was exiled to an island, then came back and got banished a second time. Uh, But there wasn't too much of it in the US in, you know, a few scarlet letter incidents and, you know, the Black Sox and Pete Rose baseball scandals. But mostly it was not, it was about things people did. People were banished and exiled, not for their words they used, but for things they did. Then we kind of get to the McCarthyism era where that changes uh you know tipper gore advocating for parental advisory labels on albums seems quaint these days uh and then and then i was looking at the story of harvard president lawrence summers who posed the possibility that one of several reasons girls gravitate less to math could be genetic maybe possibly one of several reasons and you could say he wasn't exactly canceled because he went on to be obama's director of national economic council and he's now back at harvard Uh, Lawrence Summers. So uh, maybe he was kind of like Napoleon going to Elba. The first banishment didn't stick for Summers. He ended up back at Harvard. But I'm wondering how you size this up, the the, the the cancel culture concept about ideas that uh, if a sincere person's views diverge too much from approved groupthink, that it's kind of this moral thing to do to kind of regard them as more or less a Nazi, like the, it's it's there's sort of a if you're not with the groupthink, then you are kind of a instant deplorable. Um, and we've already been talking about that a little bit, but how do you think this happened in our culture? What changed? What was the catalyst?
2: Well, that I, I don't know that I have clear answers about that, but I can tell you that I do think it's a increasing threat to k through twelve education. I think that it it has it has arrived on certain campuses although it's very interesting Bob that it's scattered in the higher ed scene it's not everywhere you can talk to some professor friends of mine at particular campuses and they act like they don't know what you're talking about and in other places say for Wesleyan um, it's uh, it pervades everything but it's the incursion of those ideas into K through 12 that now uh, really concern me the ideas you as you I think very correctly pointed out that uh, morality is reduced to this dualism of of good and bad and there are certain correct ideas that are indisputably correct um, it's an orthodoxy and everyone is expected to adhere to them and people are shunned or shamed or worse if they express any questions about those ideas. This is a a step towards totalitarianism. I mean, I don't wish to be dramatic, but it's a a very alarming factor. And what worries me is that, of course, schools and higher education should be a kind of mental or intellectual gymnasium where our ideas are being tested against other people's ideas. And that's what we enjoy and love about being there. So the desire to suppress unpopular ideas or to be shielded from them
0: yeah. Uh, so b- back to kind of straight ahead on education, uh, I'm noticing charter schools under attack a bit. Uh, your mayor, Bill de Blasio, once a presidential candidate, said he hates the private. use the word hate. In fact, he started by saying, I know we're not supposed to be saying hate. Our teachers taught us not to, but I hate the privatizers. Uh, meanwhile, Cory Booker, a Democrat who is still running for president, praising high performing charter schools in The New York Times this week, uh, you know, with some kind of welcomed as thank you, Senator Booker, other kind of others kind of thought it's more cynically that maybe he was doing a this thing didn't work. Let me try going back to my old, you know, school choice positions, political flip flopping. Um, but w- what do you see politically with respect to the charter school sector? Is there a new uh, anti charter school uh, movement uh, from your point of view?
2: Well, we certainly seem to have lost the the uh, extraordinary, uh, if fragile, consensus that we had for charters um, initially. So, if we go back to the 1990s when the movement began, we had market oriented uh, Republicans in support of it because they wanted to see some introduction of even just a uh, a slight dose of, of of the competitive dynamic into that would foster, in their view, school improvement. And then we had the left supporting it out of, frankly, a, a, a frustration with the performance of the majority system, which they shared, and the desire to create uh, experiments and and innovate. Um, and uh, that seems to uh, seems to have uh, fallen apart. And I think that's partly because. Um, of our extremely polarized times. Um, and it's partly because uh, the Trump era and Trump's support for charters is, uh, is largely unhelpful. Um, and so when people see that Trump is for it, then they're against it. That's just the reality of where we are today politically. So, uh, and then we also have the fact, I think, that Diane Ravitch, uh, who was one of my great inspirations in my early career, and and still in many ways is, has be, become obviously a fervent, uh, the most important voice, I think, against charters. Uh, and in this apostasy, we have someone who is extremely capable. Um, and we don't have an equally powerful set of voices on the pro-charter side. And this is something that really worries me. We're not making the strongest intellectual and policy case for them that we could. There's still so many misunderstandings, Bob, and I'm sure you you talk about this all the time. I remember when we were starting this charter work, as I said, in 1993 in Massachusetts, where I came from, uh, you know, we would often hear that charters cream students and that charters are not public schools and that they can select their kids. And, you know, they seem the same kind of misconceptions uh, so, some, now, honest, decades some fabricated. later, are, are yes, many of them uh, fabricated or certainly only partial truths at best are still with us. So the level of of misinformation is just incredible, and we
0: have to do something about that. So you now that you've been publicly castigated for defending intellectualism of all such horrible uh, concepts, and you've been uh, uh, public summarily dismissed. Uh, what is next for Stephen Wilson? We're only about a month on here since you're. Your troubles in that regard. What's next?
2: Well, I'm going to take some time, Bob, as I have done at different points in my career, and step out of the work of practice. Uh, Ascend will continue, and I think will be very, very successful. Uh, And I'm going to reflect on this particular moment that we're talking about in education, Uh, and I'll be writing a book. I I suspect. Uh, in the next in the next months about this moment this moment we're in a sense where we've lost our way in school reform and we need to regain it i think that to do so we need to clear some of the brush in front of us we need to regain intellectual clarity about important topics and and you and i have been talking about some of them today uh, but this question of the um, of, for example the racialization of curriculum uh, there are many topics like that where we, we've we stepped into, I think, a significant amount of confusion that we need to come out of if we're going to
0: get back on the path towards uh, radically better schools. He is Stephen Wilson, founder, former CEO of the Ascend Charter Schools of Brooklyn Borough, New York City. And Stephen, thanks for being my guest on The Learning Curve Podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: everybody, welcome back. The tweet of the week will be from well, I'm not quite sure who it's from. It's from someone who calls themselves the truth. But that's a you know, that's a bold a naming convention, isn't it? To call yourself the truth. Anyway, this actual uh, Twitter address is at the Trut38722721, in case you want to look that up. We'll also put the link in the podcast info section. But here's what the truth says. Homeschooling gets a bad rap. The more kids that are homeschooled, the less need there is for unionized teachers paying into the pension fund. That's why public educators are so against homeschooling. That from the truth. And now wrapping things up with the commentary of the week. I'm going to give that one to one of my U.S. senators. One, Mr. U.S. Senator Cory Booker, who wrote in the New York Times this week, quote, many public charter schools have proved to be an effective, targeted tool to give children with few other options a chance to succeed. That commentary from Cory Booker. Well, a program note here, the Learning Curve podcast will be giving thanks for our wonderful lives next week for what here in America we call Thanksgiving. But we will be back strong the first week of December with a guest guest ed hirsch jr the founder and chairman of the core knowledge foundation and that boy that will be a humdinger of a program we're looking forward to ed hirsch Uh, we will meanwhile uh in the spirit of thanksgiving we want to tell you for all of us both in front of and behind the microphones at the learning curve thank you for listening to this broadcast and we'll see you next time